0: Well, good morning. Good morning. morning. I give honor to our great and worthy God who alone is deserving of all praise. And I magnify him, Father, Son, and Spirit, in the trinity of his blessed, his sacred persons. I'm glad to be with you. It's good to see each of you that are here. Thankful for your presence and thankful for God's goodness that has given to us this opportunity to gather together, to look to his word. And we trust to hear from heaven, to hear from him. For that supremely is our greatest need. We are glad to see uh, some friends from the past as well as visitors who are here that we've met for the first time. Uh, it's been a blessing to be here at Spring Lake over, uh, I guess, about a year and a half now off and on. So we're thankful for God giving us that opportunity and we're glad to, glad to be together. Uh, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 113 this morning in your copies of God's Word, and I'd like for us to look together at this psalm of praise. As I mentioned before we attempted to sing that chorus together, this coming Thursday is Thanksgiving Day. It's a national holiday. It had been marked on our calendar in an unofficial way till President Lincoln declared it to be a national holiday in the 1860s. It's one that's often lost sight of in our day, sadly. The jump, as we mentioned last hour in looking at Psalm 100, the jump takes place from Halloween to Christmas with any thought, really, of uh, Thanksgiving being minimal, if at all. And that ought not to be, especially for a country that's been as blessed as our land has been, but also for us who know Him. Thanksgiving ought to be a reality in our lives. The words of Psalm 113 particularly focus on Thanksgiving, but they do so in such a way as to remind us that genuine Thanksgiving begins with the living God. We can count our blessings, we ought to, but in counting our blessings, we shouldn't lose sight of the blesser. We shouldn't lose sight of the praise that's due to the God who is the giver of every good gift and every perfect gift. And that's where Psalm 113 specifically directs the focus of praise and thanksgiving in a way that we all, I believe, need to hear. Because every one of us, I'm afraid, in our natural selves, we tend to focus on the gifts, not the giver. We tend to delight in the blessings and not the blesser. And Psalm 113 would teach us to sharpen our praise focus to look to him above the blessings and the gifts. Let's listen to the words of God here as through the psalmist he directs our praise to himself. Psalm 113 we read, Praise ye the Lord. Praise, O ye servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun and to the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and His glory above the heavens, who is like unto the Lord our God, who dwelleth on high, who humbleth Himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust, and lifteth the needy out of the dunghill, that he may set him with princes, even with the princes of his people. He maketh the barren woman to keep house and to be a joyful mother of children. Praise ye the Lord. May our God be pleased to add his blessing, his stamp and seal to his written and read word, his inspired, his preserved word. May we just pause again before him in prayer to ask his blessing on his word. Father, we bow our heads and unite our hearts as we come before You in the name that is above every name. That name You delight to honor, that name at which every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Father, we ask You to honor Him as we look to Your Word this morning. I pray, Father, Thy Spirit would communicate that truth which He has inspired in the Holy Scriptures And that you, Father, by your voice would speak to each heart to the honor of your Son in whose name we pray. Amen. And as we give you by way of a title for Psalm 113, our look at it this morning, I would give you what we mentioned just a few moments ago. Sharpening our praise focus sharpening our praise focus. Mr. Spurgeon, whom we appreciate for his messages, preaching in London and beyond years ago. Charles Spurgeon preached a message in his early years there in London on uh, the immutability of God. Not the kind of topic that many people want to think about today, but it speaks of God's unchangeability. He took his text from Malachi 3.6, I am the Lord, I change not, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. And as he began that sermon, he spoke about someone has said that the study of man is man. One of the Greek philosophers So he said, while that may be true or not, he said, the true study of God's elect ought to be the living God himself. God's people ought to be occupied with the living God. And that, brothers and sisters, is something we see within the book of Psalms. The the Psalter, as we call it, but in in the Hebrew language called Sefer Tehillim, the book of praises, a book that celebrates God's goodness and celebrates the praise of God and as it does so it focuses on the remembrance of his benefits like Psalm 103 when it says bless the Lord O my soul and all that is within me bless his holy name bless the Lord O my soul and forget not all his benefits we ought to count our blessings but the Bible also in that book of Psalms and throughout it speaks of the reality that in our lives we all also, have to lift their focus higher and think about him and that 's what Psalm one thirteen again is particularly doing. It's directing our praise to God. And as we do that, I believe there's a threefold movement that marks the psalm that I want to bring to your attention as we look at it. The first focus is on God's greatness. And while the word great doesn't occur, I believe it's there because of the fact that there's this emphasis on God. Now, I want to... As I would ask you to notice verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 113 with me again, I want to reread it. But as I reread it, I want to do it in such a way as that some of you here at Spring Lake may remember me mentioning Dr. Arp. I see your head shaking slightly, Rhonda. Cronje Burnsford Arp, C R O N J E. He was our Greek professor when I was at Campbell College, now Campbell University, years ago. He'd mandatorily retired from Wake Forest University. And Dr. Wiggins, who had taught law at Wake Forest, picked him up to come teach Greek at Campbell. And he was quite a teacher. If we mispronounced a Greek word, he would say, Ah, Mr. Morris, you put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. (laughs) And What I'd like to do is reread verses 1 through 3 and I want to put some emphasis on a word there so that I believe you might catch some of the focus of the psalm and something that but it speaks about the glory of God. Again, notice verses 1 through 3. Praise ye the Lord. Praise, O ye servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun and the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. Did I put enough emphasis on the syllable? In three verses, three times the Lord's name is mentioned. There's a reason for that. The name especially in the scriptures of the Old Testament and in the Hebrew understanding, the name is representative of the character. It speaks of the person in a real way. We see that I believe mirrored well. When uh, God tells a 99 year old man that his 89 year old wife is going to have a baby and his name is going to be Isaac. In Hebrew it's Yitzhak. And that word means laughter. Now when Sarah uh, at 90 was changing diapers she might not have been laughing. But just the thought of having that baby filled her with laughter. Yitzhak. And that was his name. But then you remember Isaac and Rebecca, his wife. They had a ch- they had children a little earlier. They'd been married about twenty years. They married he married at age forty. At age sixty, they had no children. So he prayed, and when he prayed, God opened her womb. But as she realized that she was expected, she knew that something was going on inside her. So she went out. She was a praying woman, as well as he, a praying man. And she went out and prayed and asked Lord, Why is it so? And God told her, two nations are in your womb. The elder shall serve the younger. And when that firstborn came out, he came out all hairy. And so his name was Esau. If you will, kind of like mature, full grown. Esau, the Hebrew word for hair, it comes from a similar root. But also, his brother came out holding his heel. And the word for heel is akev The word Yaakov means he will take by the hill or he will trip up. He will cheat. He'll supplant. Trickster, cheater. That's what Jacob was. He lived up to that name. That, brothers and sisters, is something that is reflected in the name of God supremely. If you'll notice, as the name of the Lord is mentioned three times in Psalm 113, those first three verses, it's all caps in our English Bibles. If you have the King James or other versions as well, some might even put Jehovah there. But well, that's the name of God that He revealed in the burning bush. The I Am name of God. Remember when Moses saw that burning bush keeping the sheep of his father Jethro. He turned aside to see that bird, that bush that was burning but not consumed, not burnt up. And as he saw that bush, he, he heard God saying, Go down and tell Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me. And as Moses received that commission, he said, When the children of Israel ask, What's your name? What am I to tell them? He said, I am that I am. You tell them I am has sent thee. Now that word I am that I am is represented in Hebrew by four consonants. We bring them over into English as Yahweh or Jehovah. But but it, it speaks of that I am name of God. The fact that he's able to say something about himself that no other being on this earth or throughout the cosmos can say. And that is, I am that I am. Every one of us in our living, we have to say, every animal, every angelic being, every rational intelligence, everything that has life has to say, I am because he is. But he can say of himself, I am because I am. In other words, he's the God who's marked by an absolute self-sufficiency, by an utter self-dependence. He, I like the way Brother Watts put it in one of his hymns, He sits on no precarious throne, nor borrows leave to be. He didn't ask my permission this morning as I laid my slumbering head on my pillow. David, I'm thinking about bringing the sun up about 6.30 Eastern time. No, he didn't do that. It came up according to his will, his purpose. And he's the God who is not dependent on us. Whatever whatever may be told today, and sometimes you'll hear it, that God made man because he needed fellowship. Well, there's a problem with that. Because, you see, when man needed fellowship in the garden, remember what God did? God highlighted man's need by bringing animals to him. And man named them, but what was found? No help meat. No help suitable. Now, man had if you will, fellowship below him with the animals. Man had fellowship above him with the God who'd made him. But what did man need? Well, he needed fellowship on his level. So God made him woman. And when man saw her, the Bible says he said, Whoa, man. (laughs) Some of you caught that. Uh, Really, in the Hebrew, ah, literally, wow, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He needed fellowship on his level. And if God were in need of fellowship, you and I who are made though His image bearers, made in His image, we wouldn't provide it fully because we're not equal to Him. And here's the beauty of this I am that I am. In His glorious person as God, in His glorious being as God, He had a perfect fellowship in the self-sufficiency of His triune being. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost Before the world began, before time was, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost had a perfect fellowship within their being. The world wasn't made because of any need or lack in God. The world was made for God's glory. You and I were made for His glory. He didn't make it because of any need existed in Himself. Because He is the I Am. And He can say of Himself, I am that I am. And that is what his name points to. The reality of who he is. The greatness of God. That that greatness that transcends us. That greatness that goes beyond us. That greatness that I can't fully wrap my mind around. And I'm glad. Because any God I could figure out wouldn't be God. Any God who's not greater and bigger than I am. But we can fully figure Ceases to be what we would understand to be God. So we have this reality of His praiseworthiness in those verses because of His greatness as the I am. And that's what we're spoken of or spoken to, addressed to do with regard to Him in these words in verses one through three. And so we're called to give praise to Him. Praise, O ye servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. And then verse 2 adds the thought, Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And there we see something about the greatness of God with regard to his person and his praise. Because we're told to praise him from this time forth and forevermore. Now, that speaks of the fact that with regard to his person and his praise, there are no temporal limits there're no time bound limits and, it, and it's so easy to illustrate how that greatness transcends the greatness that we know in this world and the best way to do it i think is in terms of sports who won the world series in 1985 who won the super bowl in 1983 I can tell you because I saw it this past week. It was Washington Redskins, I believe. But, I may be wrong on that too. I might have had, they might have been wrong. Who won the NCAA 50 years ago? Was it even played 50 years ago? Let's go to NASCAR. Who won the... Well, they changed so many plays, they're not racing. Who won the... uh, Who won the... uh, Bristol Speedway race last year or two years ago or five years. all of that that men strive for for fame it becomes so as I think the young people used to say maybe ten years ago that's so five minutes ago <laughs> all of the fame that marks the world is fading But the praise of our God is not marked by temporal limits. It will endure forever. I like what a dear black preacher friend whom you've heard me mention often, Brother Dennis Ward. He said he heard a preacher preaching one time from Isaiah 6 as the seraphim were praising God in that vision that Isaiah has of God's glory when he's called to be God's prophet. And, And they're saying, holy, 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 one cried to another. And this brother that Brother Ward was speaking of, this preacher said, that he believed that every time those angels cried holy, they were saying it about something they'd never seen in God before. And I believe that's the inexhaustibility of our God. You know, the thing about the Holy Bible, and I heard Brother Ward say this one time, he was preaching over in Greensboro from Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, Really part of the parable, actually, the threefold parable. But he he was preaching from that, and as he stood up, he said in his own inimitable way, he said, I realize that this passage has been preached from many times. He said, there's just something about the Bible. No matter how close you cut it to the bone, there's always enough meat for another sandwich. (laughs) That's the inexhaustibility of the Bible. Why does it have that kind of character? Because of the God with whom it's occupied. He's the inexhaustible God. And you keep dropping your bucket. And what's going to be true? What Terry's saying. He giveth and giveth and giveth more grace. And when we have reached the end of our hoarded resources, His full giving is just the God. That's our God, brothers and sisters. And so, reflective of His greatness, His praise will endure forever. He's blessed. From this time forth and forevermore. But also verse 3, you'll notice, it says, from the rising of the sun unto the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. It doesn't matter where you begin. If you begin at Jerusalem, or you go to Irian Jaya, it doesn't matter where you are on this earth planet. I remember when I was a young believer one time, I was at a meeting downtown at a, at, at a motel, and a, a Christian meeting, and... There was a Spanish sister there, and th- this was before there were there were not as many Latino in, in our in our country. Uh, but I looked at her and I know how Espanol pretty much still, you know. But but I looked at her and she looked at me and she how no habling plays, you know. And uh we, we, we looked at one another and we spoke the language of praise. Hallelujah. Now of course she said it hallelujah, which is the Greek version of hallelujah. Many of you didn't know you spoke Hebrew, I'm sure, in this place today. Because when you say hallelujah, you're saying praise ye the Lord, with which this psalm begins in Hebrew, verse 1. Hallelujah. Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye Jehovah. And that language is a language that's spoken universally. And brothers and sisters, one day in the presence of God and the Lamb, there are going to be those from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and people who will stand before Him and say, Thou art worthy. Thou hast redeemed us to God by Thy blood out of every kindred, tribe, and tongue. And that universal praise of our God is going to kick in in a way I don't think we can fully appreciate now. The glory of our God and His greatness because of the fact that He has saved those of every race. He's bought them with the blood of His Son and brought them to Himself by His grace through His Spirit. He did it. This is the greatness of our God. It's seen there then in verses 1 through 3. But then in verses 4 through 6, there's a there's a movement that again directs us to think about God and sharpening our praise focus. But in this case, it focuses on His glory. Notice the words of verse 4. The Lord is high above all nations and His glory above the heavens. "...who is like unto the Lord our God, who dwelleth on high, who humbleth himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth." And when we think about these words, that focus is on His highness, His glory, His majesty. And, And as we think about that, if you consider something that we don't have in our country, but if we were in the presence of royalty... I've never had that opportunity. We would walk into that presence of either a king or a queen, and if we rightly addressed them, we would say, What? Your Highness. Your H I G H N E S. Now, when I was in grade school, I had been to college, but I went to grade school too. You remember your suffixes N E S S? The state of being. Highness. The state of being high. Now that's used to speak sometimes of human royalty, but it's really only applicable properly to him who is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the one whose throne never ends. He is the one who is marked by majesty. Really, majesty is is but the the Latin form of of greatness. But it speaks of, and that's the way we might address a a potentate king, to your majesty. That, brothers and sisters, is our God in His glory, His regal glory in, in that which marks Him. He's high above all nations and His glory above the heavens. Think about that. The heavens. Consider the stars. David did in Psalm eight. Remember, when I consider the heavens, the stars, the works of thy fingers. What is man that thou art mindful of He looked at the the, the stars above, and uh, we think about those stars that are like our sun. Some of them bigger, far bigger, far far bigger. Uh, the 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 galaxies. The billions of stars, you know, every now and again the Bible, uh, the science, excuse me, catches up with the Bible. For instance, Genesis, God spoke to Abraham and said, your descendants will be like the grains of sand, like the sand of the seashore and like the stars of the sky. And If you and I had lived maybe 100, 200 years ago, we'd have never thought that there'd be as many stars out there as there would be grains of sand, would we? But then there was something by the name of Hubble that was invented, you know, and we found out that there are billions of galaxies, possibly, with billions of stars. There may be more stars than there are grains of sand. But the idea is that God is far superior, far above, transcendent above them. I remember one time when I was preaching in a family camp up in above Williamsport, Pennsylvania. And uh, as we were there, one of the pastors from New Jersey and I were out there on the, on the basketball court, dark at night. And where we were in above Williamsport, Trout Run, Pennsylvania, pitch dark, no ambient lighting around us. And, and as we were there, uh, I like to say that the older pastor and I were hanging out with our group, the teenagers, you know. But that would have been uh, a stretch, if not outright dishonest. But they were looking up, you know, at the stars, and we had this beautiful blanket, very little moonlight, no ambient lighting around us, no no street lights, nothing, nothing of that order. And they're looking up, and you yeah, see that constellation there? Yeah, that's the Big Dipper. You see that constellation there? And, and Brother Harry, the preacher from New York, he said, that's Pelusium. And I said, no, it's not. You made that up. He said, they didn't know that. <laughs> we were having a good time, but what we were doing... Taking in the handiwork of God. Think about what He's made. Every star that's up there preaches to you and me and says, God made me. That's what Romans 1 says. and Psalm 19 says as well, the heavens declare what? The glory of God. And we see His glory displayed. And yet... He transcends that. He excels that. He's superior to that. That's what His glory is. The Hebrew word for glory is kavod. It literally means weight. And if you will, some of y'all may remember back in the days of Mr. Bush and Mr. Cheney. I think I said it right. They debated how to say it. Cheney, Cheney. But Mr. Cheney started using the word Gravitas toss and some still use it wait that's what our God has glory he's solid he's substantive he's lasting you and I frail children of dust and feeble is frail in thee do we trust nor find thee to fail as for man his days are as grass the grass withers the flowers fade but what the word of our God shall endure forever. Why? Because of who He is. That, brothers and sisters, is glory. Think about what the psalmist says here. Who is like unto the Lord our God who dwelleth on high? If you answer that rightly, you say nobody. He's incomparable. He's the God who not only is inexhaustible, but, he, but He's incomparable. And then He speaks of our God who humbleth Himself to behold the things that are in heaven And in the earth. Think about that. What you and I look up to and say, wow. Then as we used to say in the 70s, we say it backwards, wow. (laughs) Some of you will catch that later. (laughs) We look up and God looks down to behold it. He humbleth himself to behold the things that are done on earth. Why? Because he's so exalted. Exalted. But those words, brothers and sisters, of verse 6, they really provide a bridge into verses 7 through 8. In those first three verses, we see God's greatness. In the in the, 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 the next three, verses 4 through 6, we see God's glory. But in verses 7 through 8, we see His grace. For in, in the words of verse 6, again, there's a bridge. As we see the God who is transcendent, the God who is great and glorious... He humbles Himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth. And this is where people a lot of times today, in our day, they unplug from who God is because they think, He's so big, He's so great, He couldn't care about me. The truth is, God in His goodness, God in His grace, looks on the sons of men. The one who's so great, the one who's so glorious, he humbles himself to behold what's going on on earth. I want to move on, but I just want to pause here and say that's good news. I experienced it 48 years ago and I've been experiencing it ever since. And I even experienced it before I experienced it. Because His kind providence was watching over my life before I came to know Him. And as I came to know Him, ever since then, that goodness has kept on being showered on me. That grace has kept on coming to me. And, and the Spirit of God here leads the psalmist to direct Our praise focus, not only to the God who's great, not only to the God who's glorious, but the God who's gracious. Notice the words there in verses 7 through 9. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust, and lifteth the needy out of the dunghill, that he may set him with princes, even with the princes of his people. He maketh the barren woman to keep house, and to be a joyful mother of children. Praise ye the Lord. As the psalmist here by inspiration, focuses on God's grace. Let's start at the back end, if we may, in verse 9. He makes the barren woman to keep house and to be a joyful mother of children. Praise ye the Lord. I I begin here because I think it's a good way to go back to verses 7 and 8, but, but I also begin here because we have in the Old Testament so many of those wonder births. Uh, I've mentioned one already, Abraham and Sarah. I mean, Abram gave up. Remember Genesis 16. Abram said, well, and Sarah, I helped him. Sarah said, it's probably not me. He He meant Hagar. And that wasn't God's answer. They had Ishmael. and that That wasn't the promised child. God had said, Sarah's the one. And here's this woman... Ninety years old. Is that your great grandson? <laughs> well, actually, that's Isaac. That's my boy. That's my firstborn son. Eight months old. Eight days old. And th- there she is. I, you know, I've got cause to believe she probably nursed him like any mother did. God made those mammary glands filled with milk. She she was nursing that boy what are you doing nursing your grandson? That's my boy. Wonder births. But you know the words of Psalm 113, they echo another wonder birth in scripture. The words of a wonder birth in scripture, the words of Hannah in 1 Samuel 2. As you remember, she was married to a man who was of the priestly line, Elkanah. She had a Co wife. I don't know what you call them. Peninnah was the other wife of Elkanah, and Elkanah had children by her, but Hannah had no children. And as they went up to Shiloh yearly to worship the Lord at the tabernacle, and they offered sacrifices as they did that, his heart was broken because she had no child and Penetra was making fun of her. You've got no babies. He may like you better, but you've got no children to give him. I've got sons. I've got daughters. She went and poured out her heart to God. You remember Eli, the high priest, sitting there on his stool. The Hebrew word Kisei could be translated throne. He's seated there on his seat and he sees her lips moving and no words coming out. He thinks she's drunk and he accuses her of that. She says, don't let thy servant... Don't, don't take thy servant for a daughter of Belial. I'm not drunk and I poured out my heart to God. The Lord grant thy petition, He said. And guess what? Had a, Hannah had a Samuel. She lent him to the Lord. God did a wonderful thing. He, he made the barren woman to keep house. And to be a joyful mother of children. You see, Samuel is just the beginning. After she lent him to the Lord, she had some more children too. God does that, brothers and sisters. God's able. But, but you, you can take those wonder births of Scripture, the Old Testament, and there are others. Miss Manoa, we're not even told her name. Samson's mother. We have those wonder births in Scripture, but, but we come to that greatest of all births. It transcends even the wonder births. When God spoke to a virgin womb, and by the power of the holiest, by the power of the Holy Ghost, God made that womb to conceive without any human seed passing to it. Without the aid, instrumentality, or help of man, Mary conceived the Messiah. By the way, I didn't mention this. It was in my mind. But, you know, things move fast when you're up here. So does time. But, but I love the way God does birth announcements. You know, we send birth announcements after the fact. Son, daughter, name, length, weight, you know. We do that. God did His birth announcements before conception. That's how they occur so often. And that's what happened when Gabriel came to Mary, said, Fear not, Mary. Blessed art thou among women. You're highly favored, graced by God. And then he spoke of that child that would be born. That one who would rule over the house of David forever. And of his kingdom there would be no end. Rule over the house of Jacob, excuse me, forever. And of his kingdom there would be no end. That one is the one in whom supremely God's grace is seen. You see, the interesting thing is, and because of time I won't ask you to turn there, but in 1 Samuel 2, Samuel records the words of His mother Hannah at the temple when she dedicates Him and she talks about how He does what verses 7 and 8 tell. He lifts the beggar from the dunghill sets him among princes. And then Mary, she sings that in the Magnificat in Luke chapter 1 and she sings about the grace that God has shown her and how He has passed by the mighty and the rich, the high... And He's elevated the low. See, that's what grace does. The character of grace is upside down. The character of grace makes you bet on those you would never bet on, on any human terms. Because that's what God delights to do through His grace. And that's what verses 7 and 8 speak of. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust, and lifteth the needy out of the dunghill, that he may set him with princes, even with the princes of his people. Think about that a moment. Now, I don't know if I need to give an exegetical and expository explanation and definition of a dunghill, do I? I think all of us can appreciate that. A manure pit. You heard about the little girl who was bringing her boyfriend home to meet her mom and dad and her dad walked in, he was a farmer and he was saying manure this and manure that and the little girl looked at her mom, well she wasn't that little, she was dating but she, she looked at her mom and said mom can you get him to not stop saying manure? And she said honey it got me 25, You took me 25 years to get him to say manure <laughs> I think we all appreciate what a dunghill is and that's where I was when he found me I was on the dunghill of my sin. My moral and spiritual rebellion against Him. I was lost to Him. And the good news of the Gospel is about grace that tells of a God who comes and seeks and saves those who are on the dunghill. Those who are lost. Those who weren't seeking Him, brothers and sisters, when the fall occurred in Genesis 3, you and I didn't run to Him. When Adam and Eve, when they they found out they were naked, they put on fig leaves, but when God showed up, they hid themselves because their fig leaves weren't enough. And our righteousness is not enough to clothe ourselves to go into His presence. The only thing we can do is hide. But thank God He's the seeking God who says to sinners, where are you? And when he asked, if as somebody said, God never ask a question for information. I love the way it's been put. Did it ever occur to you that nothing ever occurred to God? He's not asking for information. He's asking out of love to the sinner. Where art thou? So that we can identify ourselves and say, "Ah, oh, here I am and I'm lost. Here I am, I'm in the dung pit. Here I am, I'm in the hog pen. I'm, I'm in the pig parlor of my sin. But the good news is, He's the God who seeks the lost. And by the way, if you really want to appreciate the prodigal son in Luke 15, you've got to read the first two frames of the parable. Dr. Luke says He spake a parable unto them. It's one parable, three frames or three stories. It begins with the lost sheep. And then a lost coin. And then you get to the sun, And the sun only says, I believe I'll go home because there was a shepherd seeking the sheep and there was a woman sweeping for the coin. In other words, grace finds its beginning in Him. Doesn't find its beginning in us. If If it had waited on me for its beginning, I'd be in hell right now licking up the fire. But because of the mercy of grace of God, brothers and sisters... There's going to be, as we mentioned earlier, there are going to be those from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and people who will stand before Him. But I must say this as we think about the grace of God, and we think particularly again about those words of of verse 7, He raiseth up the poor out of the dust, and lifteth the needy out of the dunghill, that He may set him with princes, even with the prince of His people. As we think about those He saves, the poor... And by the way, Isaiah 61 says he's anointed to preach good tidings to the poor. As we think about that, and we think about that grace of his person, in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, the Apostle Paul writing about giving to the church at Corinth, he says this, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. Why? That ye through his poverty, through his impoverishment, might be made rich. There's the wonderful exchange that the gospel speaks of. There's the wonderful exchange the reformers preached. Christ in your place. Christ in my place. Why? So that we might occupy his place. So that we who were poor on the dunghill might be set among princes. That's why he cried out on the tree, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was becoming poor that you and I might be rich. For there was no other way And as the hymn writer wrote in that hymn, There is a green hill far away. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. And thank God He has done that. Because of that, we have a God whose grace is so great and for whom we should indeed give praise. Yeah." And that's why sometimes we sing, Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I love to sing your praises. I'm so glad you're in my life. I'm so glad you came to save us. What'd you do? You came from heaven to earth. I'd like to alter a little to be the way. Because he did more than show it. From the earth to the cross, my debt to pay. From the cross to the grave, from the grave to the skies. Lord, I lift your name on high. Why? Because of a grace that was greater than my sin. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide. Whiter than snow you may be today. That's the good news of the Gospel. And you may be in this meeting place lost to God, lost to His Son. But I tell you, you can leave this meeting place saying, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Your life can be changed as you come to the Lord Jesus Christ. As God by His Spirit brings you sweetly to Him. And in faith and repentance you trust Him. That's the good news of the gospel. And that's the grace of the God we praise. Have a good Thanksgiving. Give Him some glory because He's glorious. Give Him some glory because He's great. Give Him some glory because He's gracious. If today you don't know that grace. You see, Paul could write to the Corinthians what we quoted. 2 Corinthians 8. 9, For ye know the grace. Some would expand that generosity of our Lord Jesus Christ. How generous He's been. How gracious He's been. If you know Him not today, I would say to you, run to Him. As a sinner, run to Him. Go to Him. Why would you perish? Why would you go down to the pit? Come to Christ and live. Thank God for the blessed gospel. Thank God for the good news. May that today resonate in our souls. And may the shockwave of it be spontaneous, continuous praise to Him. For He is worthy.